KPFA Alive. Thank you. And you are listening to 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover. My name is Raina Cowan, and you're listening to Cover to Cover Open Book, or as I like to call it, Frame to Frame. Uh, and this this month on my show, I wanted to talk about Hitchcock. I love talking about Hitchcock. I could probably spend a lot of time as a film critic thinking about Hitchcock from many different angles. But today we're going to talk about the Hitchcock Nine, which <laughs> sounds like some kind of... Um, uh, group that's been arrested, but it actually is the rare silence that have been restored. Uh, Hitchcock in the, the tw- uh, late 20s made a series of nine films, and they've recently been restored. They were showed first uh, in the Bay Area through the Silent Film Festival, and they are now sh- being showed through the San Francisco, um, sorry, they're now being showed wonderfully at the Bay um, BAM PFA, Pacific Film Archive in Berkeley. So with me to talk about the films, I'm joined first by Susan Oxtopy, who's the senior film curator at um, the Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive. Welcome to KPFA. Thanks, Raina. And because they're silent films, one of the key things about silent films is that there's music. And Judith Rosenberg is the wonderful composer of the music, and she is playing um, the piano through the screenings of all nine of the films. Uh, She started working with silent films in 2001, and she's a classically trained pianist. Welcome to KPFA. Well, thank you. So why don't we start with, uh, Susan, your first experience seeing these new cleaned up uh, versions of these films that some of them haven't been showed before or haven't mm-hmm. been shown in this this format. What struck you as um, the most unique about them? Well, you know, they are beautiful restorations, and I, I believe this is the most complex uh, restoration project that the British Film Institute has taken on today, which really says a lot. The Hitchcock Nine are um, they're beautiful prints. They're digitally restored. Um, we're showing a combination of 35 millimeter prints and DCPs, but there's such great clarity to the work. Um, you really see, um, you know, the strength of Hitchcock's um, uh, casting crew. You know, the characters come through beautifully, and and really the scenes, the art direction, and um, mise-en-scene are, are so striking. So, you know, they look better than ever. And it's it's true that these this set of Hitchcock material is not that well known. This is very important that this the Hitchcock 9 is, is rolling out and, and touring to about a dozen cities in the U.S. right now. Um, but th- And there's just fabulous narratives. So that's what you're noticing is that that the way that he is able to tell a story, even from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's a very skilled director. I mean, it's, it's so important to see the Hitchcock Nine because Hitchcock's sound films are so well known to people, you know, both his, the British period sound films and the, the American period work. But in his early uh, films, you see his interest in suspense right from the beginning, even though technically only two of the Hitchcock Nine are, are thrillers. Um but you also see his interest in psychological issues. There's a wonderful film called Downhill that's about a, um, you know, 
well-to-do um, schoolboy in a British school who, whose life just takes a trajectory downwards because of a series of events. Um, but So, yes, psychological issues are ones that we think of about Hitchcock when we think of his later works like Rebecca or Spellbound or Vertigo. So that was always a real comfortable and, and important part of, of Hitchcock's work. Hitchcock was also very interested in melodrama. So in the Hitchcock Nine, there are some spectacular melodramas, The Pleasure Garden that we're showing coming up, um, and um, The Manxman are perfect examples of, of fantastic melodramas. And Hitchcock, right from the early years, had a great sense of stylistic innovation. So he was working in a narrative tradition, but he was bringing to it all kinds of innovative techniques, be it um, integrating animation on some of the title cards. Um, we see that in The Lodger. Um, he also used kind of graphic qualities in in the films. Um, he used tinting and... Um, really striking camera angles and camera placement. And I think that these are the things that make Hitchcock's films um, so cinematic. You know, it wasn't Cannes theater. It really was... Hitchcock was really understanding how to use um, film as a, a as a visual form. He also, from the early period, can be seen as a great entertainer. And I think this is how a lot of the historians first positioned Hitchcock, especially the British historians, was just that he had this fabulous way of... Um, intertwining humor in in his work, uh, lots of comic touches, and even in, in, in the suspense films. So that's always great to see that crime and espionage with these touches of humor. And um, I think most importantly, though, Hitchcock was so good at, at developing a narrative tradition using and, and having a very wide range of techniques that he used in storytelling. Well, it's, it's really interesting, because if we start first with The Lodger, which... Uh, showed last Friday, a week ago. Uh, you know, I see a lot of both um, narrative films uh, and as well a lot of experimental films. Mm-hmm. And the way in The Lodger, which is sort of in some ways about like the equivalent of like Jack the Ripper kind of setup, uh, he creates uh, this environment with the camera and the use of light and the way that the editing is done that I think... Uh, very modern experimental films are now using those techniques mm-hmm. that he was doing all on his own uh, in the 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's remarkable. Yeah, there's that classic um, technique that he uses in The Lodger where he literally shoots the main character pacing across his, his room where he's lodging. And the shot is shot through a glass floor and so that the... Um, the owners of, of the, the lodging house um, see, they, they're looking at feet walking back and forth and they see their chandelier swinging. But it's really a great technique that the way that that shot was achieved was shooting through a glass floor. But it looks like you're looking at um, through a ceiling. But it's just really striking. So the other thing that struck me about these films is that a couple of them, you know, because I watched them on DVD in advance, a couple of them had music that was attached to them at some point. And a couple others that I watched uh, had no sound at all. So it was a very different kind of experience. And that brings me uh, Mm -hmm. to Judith Rosenberg. Uh, You're trying to come up with music that goes with these films. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm wondering if the first time that you watched them, 
what are you paying attention to to try to figure out? Is it uh, the way that Hollywood films today are trying to mimic uh, emotional resonance? Is it something else? Like, what are you noticing when you're just at the very beginning stages of thinking about uh, laying down some ideas? When I first watched the film, uh, I pay attention to my response. And more often than not, some kind of musical theme will pop into my brain. And I uh, try very much to pay attention to that, to my first response, my first musical response to what I'm uh, looking at. Uh, and, uh, and, and go with that. And then, um, I will, uh, I have a, a little TV screen on my piano and so I can, I can, uh, practice, uh, uh, playing something and looking at the film at the same time and seeing if I think it works or not. Um, and then I will sometimes experiment and say to myself, okay, well, maybe if I start the music in a, in a, in a fast pace instead of a slow pace, uh, uh, uh with, with what's happening on the screen, what will that do to the way the the uh, the uh, film is being perceived visually? So I experiment a little bit, but by and large, I end up um, paying more attention to my very first response, emotional musical response to the film, um, and I uh, more often than not compose just a theme. Uh, it could be a melodic theme, it could be a rhythmic theme, but it's some kind of major theme that I feel encapsulates the main thrust of the psychology of the film. And then I compose a contrasting theme. Uh, so if the first theme is lyric, the second theme will be more rhythmic. And I develop these themes and, uh, and work with them um, uh, throughout the film. So... When somebody is watching the film and hearing your music, do you think at the end, would, would it be useful for them to have been paying attention to your music all the time? Or is it more important that the music creates such an atmosphere that the audience is not really noticing it as an element? I think the the uh, the latter. I I I don't uh, like um, to call attention to myself. Particularly, I think uh, one of the best compliments that I can get is that I disappear because um, uh, through all my work with with dance throughout the years, uh, I was taught that uh, that the visual always trumps the oral. Uh, the visual is so strong. Uh, the oral is very strong too. Music is very important and can influence uh, the way a film is perceived. However, the visual is what I aim for. I want the audience to forget about me particularly. And uh, in some way, uh, I want them to focus even more uh, intently on the visual of the film. It's interesting. So tonight, uh, you're screening Blackmail. And now Blackmail is an interesting film in that the main character, who's a woman, is somebody who, as the audience, we don't really like initially. Um, and then there's a whole series of things that happen. And I think our our feelings about her change. So do you think that you're paying attention at all to... Um, how the audience maybe will soften or <clears throat> identify with a character? Or do you think it's really more about 
the way that the scenes are being moved together and you're not really paying attention so much to the change in individual character. I would like to think that I'm, I am paying attention, most definitely. Um, that's that's uh, what development of material is all about in a movie, I think. Um, you start out with a theme, and then uh, through manipulation of the theme, uh, you you can have the artistic liberty of of, of uh, changing it according to what you're what you're seeing on the screen. So, Susan, I'm sure you've seen these <clears throat> films in many different forms. Mm-hmm. When you heard the music that was uh, Judas' music. Mm-hmm. Is did something happen in terms of how you saw the film that was different when you saw it with other music? Well, this is why I'm I'm so impressed with uh, Judith Rosenberg's approach to playing for silent films is that she really is in tune with the emotional uh, um, tenor of, of the film. And but as she's just said, she holds back. She's not upstaging uh, the film, and her playing is is so um, uh, just. In sync without being literal, but uh, in in the right emotional spirit for for the film. And I think um, she's also such a gifted musician that she can do lots of things musically in terms of how she chooses to um, work across the whole composition of a film. It, the, the performance is extremely unified and, and uh, carefully thought through. Uh, you seem to do this quickly, but I, I know that um, you just bring your background, a great background to it. But... The um, so I really like uh, I've been enjoying uh, the Hitchcock series in this first week and just uh, seeing the range with which Judith is is using uh, for performance and uh, just that um, the films really shine even even a film like The Farmer's Wife which um, may seem um, a little slow going at points but actually Judith brought so much to um, the little bits of business that are in that film if it's um, the scenes of of nature and farm life and animals or if it's the different characters uh, female characters that are shown about four of them are kind of cameo type parts and then there's the one central character of, of the maid Minta in this film and, and just Judith just was able to treat each of those characters so beautifully uh, th- through the themes and, and the playing that she was um, using so if we go then through um, some of the themes that are in at least the more modern Hitchcock films, uh, you know, there's always the, well, not always, there's somehow this kind of vulnerable woman who um, both seduces as maybe dangerous and at the same time, uh, maybe it's something psychological, something internal that's moving her. It's not, Maybe she isn't evil or maybe she is. <laughs> there's always that kind of question. Do you see remnants of of that theme in some of these early films? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, at, at first glance it seems that female characters are either coming out of uh, the theater world, the chorus girls, or they work in fairgrounds or they're barmaids or housekeepers. Uh sometimes they're daughters, but they often seem to have this deceptive quality uh that they are involved in love triangles and and really, you know, <laughs> kind of just not all that um ethical <laughs> in, in, in the way that we, we might want them to be. But then there's the other side that Hitchcock has in his uh, range of female characters. He also has the idealized woman 
um, who will be there and, and just kind of waiting and waiting until uh, a narrative resolves itself. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's amazing. And, and Hitchcock's interest in, in blondes, you can see in the early work, um, some of the chorus girls are wearing sh- short bobs in the 20s and with um, curls. And it's a very funny little scene in uh, in one of the films where the... Um, uh, um, an older gentleman is is watching the chorus girl and then pursues her after after the show uh, comments on her kissable curls and then she, the actress pulls off the curl which is a fake little lock and hands it to him and says well here you go <laughs> it's really <laughs> quite amazing right that is so interesting now the uh, the other thing that's so interesting is this idea of linking sex and murder and uh violence and uh that was also present then. Hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, certainly, blackmail, which we're screening tonight, is a, a prime example of um, um, the main lead being involved in a murder and and how that all comes about. But um, yeah, Hitchcock definitely it was that was a primary focus of his work was um, uh, sexual tensions um, and um, deception. Um, and uh, yeah, it's all it's all quite uh, spicy. Now, one of the things that's interesting in the film tonight is that there is a a, a painting of a jester, uh, and uh, the picture, which is very sort of explicit and intense, changes through the course of the film. And I think that's something that also he was always able to do, which is you see something that seems like it's not important, and then it becomes. Uh, ferociously horrible to watch mm-hmm. and then it all of a sudden develops some kind of other kind of meaning over the course of time mm-hmm. so it's actually the things can change uh, and I think that's something that's also a theme that he develops much more later on mm-hmm. yeah yeah. so if we think about uh, for example the last film that you're showing in this um this series which is the manx man which it takes place on the isle of man judith i'm wondering if uh, the fact that it was an island and it was uh, more remote and it was sort of this it was these people who were mainly fishermen initially and then it tells the story of a love triangle uh, how you paid attention to thinking about the music um, in something where it was more of a rural setting rather than an urban setting. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the atmosphere uh, of the, of the landscape um, uh, enters into the mix. Um, I I don't know that I can uh, uh, demonstrate to you without benefit of having my piano right here. Um, but definitely, I think that's a very good point that you make. Uh, that there that there uh there is a difference between the feel of an urban uh setting and a, and a uh, a, la- a landscape like the Manx man absolutely good point or the film the box the film that deals with boxing i mean i wonder if there's some some films that you're that you're dealing with um that your that your focus is really i don't that maybe I don't know if you love the film more or you can identify with uh, the, it's the film energy. More. It's the energy. Uh, mm-hmm. I played for for the ring, uh, and um, I chose um, a 
quasi uh, jazz. I'm not a jazz musician by any stretch, but I did um, attempt to um, channel uh, Darius Mio, La Creation du Monde, a little bit, um, and um, and uh, uh, have that as as one of the the motifs because uh, of the uh, the nature of of uh, what I felt was uh, appropriate for a boxing movie. Um, but I want to point out also that um, I find Hitchcock's um, uh, movies um, in this series very musical. He uh, starts the ring with uh, some very uh, innovative, uh, almost uh, German expressionist type of, um, of, uh, of of sequences involving uh, motion, and and in, in German expressionist films, you find the machine doing a lot of the work. But here, he does it with uh, the carousel and the amusement park, and brings a kind of surreal nature to the amusement park and and the uh, the uh, the camera is just whizzing by and the uh, the 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 motion is frenetic and so it's a very tense interesting musical thing to do and so i find playing for a film like the ring very uh, easy in a sense because he's giving me so much musical material anyway Hmm. That's interesting. We're speaking with Judith Rosenberg and Susan Oxtoby. The series, The Hitchcock Nine, Rare Silence Restored, runs through Saturday, August 31st at um, PFA in Berkeley. So, Susan, uh, you know, I, I'm wondering if watching these films, if we can go the other direction, mm -hmm. if there was something about watching these films that you see things in his more... Uh, recent films mm -hmm. that you didn't really pay attention to in the same way or are there things that you're noticing different after seeing this kind of beginning work right well i think a lot of his um his narrative technique was developed in the silent period and and so some of the really great things are um how he deals with editing rhythm and pacing um he has a real economical way of working if you just even take any one of the works and look at the first minute of the film you really see how quickly um hitchcock can establish what we need to know about um the you know it's almost like we're starting in the middle of um speed velocity is is a common theme in his work so it could be that the very first image of a film would be a spinning tire then you see that you're um in a a truck and that truck turns out to be a police surveillance gang um and where where it is that they're going but if you literally look at how quickly those shots are, are cut together um it, it, hitchcock was a master at compression um he also loved that sense of velocity and and when you think of the great um sound films if it's um north by northwest or um um where we're kind of following the characters in pursuit of you know the great american monuments <laughs> um that it's usually um cars trains planes all kinds of vehicles that are helping to kind of advance the speed of his uh, sound narrative films and so you see that in the early work you also see hitchcock's interest in you know the great monuments we were talking about the urban hitchcock and uh in blackmail we see piccadilly circus and big ben um featured in in some of the um street scenes so he's constantly um um really sh showing and playing up location shooting um uh 
the aspect of point of view in Hitchcock's cinema is really important, and you see that in the silent period, um, it, whereby the suspense, suspense in, in the films kind of comes out of um, the central character or any character's point of view of, of an object. It could be a gun. It could be some object that's important in the scene or foreshadows something but um it's it's so important that hitchcock uses um point of view shots to establish that that tension and thereby give us suspense um i think hitchcock's uh fabulous work with his collaborators on art direction is is amazing these films are extremely stylish um they it looked like they were not sparing a lot of expense in terms of the dance halls or the the lavish ballrooms that we see and 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 the costumes are very contemporary uh the characters are really you know decked out and um and i think also just in another way uh hitchcock's ability to kind of use typecasting that the characters even in the bit parts all have such interesting faces and can be very kind of out of the ordinary um and they can just have short amounts of of time on screen but th- that that's something that you see in the later works as well just this these great uh little scenes that occur in films and and you know those characters don't return but somehow they add such character to the narratives themselves it is actually interesting because the other thing that i'm aware of is that even back then violence is off screen it makes it more like, so that uh, there's murders or or plunging to death kinds of things mm-hmm. but we don't ever see the violence and the gore right, right. it almost makes it that much more scary <laughs> yes yeah. and he yeah. so you you see these techniques that uh, happen much later in his films mm-hmm. that are already very present that's right yeah yeah um, and, and I guess the other thing that I notice is that somebody comes into a room and you don't know, you have to assess as the audience member whether they're the, the quote-unquote good guy or bad guy, mm-hmm. that you don't really know that that there's a shuffling that continually happens mm-hmm. in these films uh, so that you're not told, you know, this is the fairy princess and this is what's going to happen. You have to figure out, well, wait, is this a crime boss or is are these the police? Mm-hmm. And are they going to do something good or are they going to do something bad? And then through the course of the films, you're always kind of changing that, mm-hmm. which I guess... Um, you must play a lot with Judith in the music in terms of the rhythm, that there's some way where uh, that the audience in a Hitchcock film is always on edge. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I actually um, uh, uh, intentionally um, try to mislead the audience <laughs> <laughs> because I knew the outcome of The Lodger, uh, but the audience didn't. And... Uh, there was a scene uh, involving the lodger uh, knocking on the bathroom door, and she's taking a bath. And uh, and so there's a, a, a an aerial shot of her feet in the bathtub, and one begins to wonder. Hitchcock wants you to wonder um, if this guy really is the murderer or not. And so I decided to fool the audience, and I played some rather sinister music <laughs> there. Um, so I, I, I just uh, had some fun. Does that does that mean that you started taking on the character of Hitchcock yourself when you're coming up with the music? No, I I tried to take on the um, the uh, the aspect of uh, putting myself in the audience's place and and thinking, gee, you know, I mean, if if I if they hear something sinister, maybe the audience will begin to think, well, maybe he really is the guilty one. I just had a little fun.
<laughs> well, so that is very complicated. Although I have, in that there is a way where even if you know what's going to happen when you watch one of Hitchcock's films, <laughs> somehow some other part of your body or mind gets tricked and you are propelled back into um, certain kinds of states. So um, I think that's really fascinating. It is. And I think the humor really helps with that, too, because it keeps it, um, he keeps entertaining us. And at the same time, uh, there's this lurking fear in, in the works. Huh. Yeah. So it's, it's a great technique. Yeah. It is. And especially when you've heard interviews with him, you know, he's so kind of droll. <laughs> and then there's this little smile and he's just said something kind of wicked mm-hmm. um, that... In some ways, he that that's present, but he uses it in a very different way in his films than he does in terms of, I think, how he thinks. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I don't know. That, that there's something really very interesting there. If you want more information, the website is... Uh, BAMPFA.edu. And the phone number is 510-642-1412. It's at the corner of Bowditch and Bancroft in Berkeley. I want to thank both of you for joining us. Thanks, Erin. Thank you very much. For Open Book, Cover to Cover, Frame to Frame, this is Raina Cowan, and I will see you next month. Thanks. This is about Mexican migration, legal and illegal. It's about our need for truth and feeling for one another. On September 26, journalist, photographer, labor activist David Bacon will clarify Mexican migration issues at a gathering in Oakland. His new book, The Right to Stay Home, has been heartily praised by Eliseo Medina, International Secretary of the Service Employees International Union. Medina says this is a must for organizers, immigrant advocates, and citizens who care. David tells us who got into this mess and what we need to do to fix it. Hosted by Miguel Guerrero, David Bacon will be at Oakland's Asian Cultural Center, 388 9th Street, on Thursday, September 26th. There's wheelchair access. Get advanced tickets for this KPFA benefit online at brownpapertickets.com or at a supportive bookstore. Find full info at kpfa.org for David Bacon, September 26th, Punto.